Hello and welcome to the Holistic Nutritionist Podcast with your hosts Natalie K. Douglas, thyroid healer, and Kate Callahan, the Holistic Nutritionist. Nat and Kate are degree qualified dietitians and nutritionists, certified fitness instructors, speakers, and authors. If you love unfiltered banter, unedited bloopers, and authentic heart sharing, then we are your ladies. Now it's time to sit back, relax, and get ready for our latest tips on living your healthiest life possible. Hey guys, welcome back to episode We Don't Know. We were just discussing that we should probably put the episode numbers on there. Um, Kate, what's happening? (laughs) We don't have to admit these things. We can pretend we know. (laughs) I can't, I'm a terrible liar. I'm like that liar where like, you give way too much information. Like when I was, you know, didn't do my homework from school or something, it'd be like, oh, sorry, like my mum's sister's dog was over and it like was eating chewy, what are those things called? Chews, oh, dog chews? Yeah, but there's like a brand, Snackadoo, No, I've got no idea. That, that's human food. Oh, my God, if someone knows, please tell me. Oh, it's going to kill me. Smackers, smuckers. I don't know. Someone needs Smackers. to comment. Someone needs to comment on that. Anyway, smackers. Dogs go wacko for smackers. Yeah, yeah, smacko. Yeah. Anyway, now I've ruined my story. Anyway, I'm just one of those people that gives way too much information when I'm trying to lie. People so, are like, okay. yeah, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh my god, too funny. Um, Anyway, um, any updates, Kate? We haven't, we haven't done a podcast together in so long. I've missed speaking to you and recording ourselves. <laughs> any updates? Well, I just got back from Sydney and I saw you in Sydney, which was fabulous. And we got yes. to do a little workshop together at the grounds in Alexandria, which is a very cool place with a very cool bird. Um, but it was awesome to go there for the doTERRA Australia New Zealand uh, convention to learn all about the new products and to learn all about their charity work and their co-impact sourcing and how they're supporting farmers in developing countries and building medical centres and schools and access to fresh water. It's, it's really quite incredible to see all of the things that they're doing. The second day I spent pretty much in tears the whole day. Amazing. I don't blame you. I would too. I, I've seen like their charity stuff is just incredible and I think you know and especially when you go to like convention and things like that it's every time at those kind of events it's so powerful um even just the collective energy in a room like that um I feel it when I go to um you know other symposiums or conventions and stuff it's so nice to bring people together yeah so awesome and um we get to do go to the gala and get dressed up but it was on the first night, so we got all beautiful on the first night, and then it was just a, a downhill slope from there, really. Oh, <laughs> um, anti-climax. But, <laughs> but, yeah, it's cool. So we were there with, you know, just a small 5,000 other people. Oh, yeah, just a few people. Just the Not size many. of Wanaka, yeah. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> back, home to the, back home to just your children and uh, your husband coming in yeah. and out, that's all right. <laughs> but yeah, so my four month stint of traveling around is coming to an end and I'm going to, I'm looking forward to a bit more chill out time during June, really. I'm just going to stay put and spend a little bit more time with the fam bam. Nice. Yeah. You have done a lot of traveling. Yeah, I have, which has been awesome. It's been awesome to get out there and actually meet people throughout New Zealand and Australia and people who 
have been following me on Instagram or, or Facebook and have been really intrigued and wanting to try essential oils, but they're like, yeah, I get that you like them, but I kind of want to smell them first. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally understandable. So yeah. I will be traveling around a little bit more, but I've got to have a bit of downtime first. That sounds acceptable. I would <laughs> definitely agree that after some travel, you'd want some downtime. I really don't like hotels at the moment. I was staying in one on the weekend and like n- none of them that I stay in have windows. And I'm like, mm. where do you get your fresh air? But I can't say yeah. that to them, obviously. Do you but- know, I think in all of my travel, I don't think I stayed in a hotel. Uh, well, I, I stayed with other people in my community in their yeah. house, which was awesome. And oh, so nice. And like in Airbnbs, I stayed in some pretty cool Airbnbs and I stayed yeah. in a dock, a dock house in Mount Cook Village, which was basically right at the foot of Mount Cook, which was wow. incredible. It was incredible. I tried to take photos, but my phone just did not do it justice. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, no, I, I usually stay in Airbnbs, but I just went to a conference in Melbourne and I just stayed in the hotel because I was by myself and I get lost really easily, which sounds like like I'm not even kidding, like really easily. And so, and I was already feeling a bit anxious. Um, so I was like, mm, I'll, I'll just stay where the actual convention or symposium, whatever is because, and like not go too far because <laughs> I legit can't get home guys. It's a real, the struggle is so real. And like, someone's like, why don't you buy like something to help you? And I'm like, I have maps on my phone. I don't know how much more help you can get than someone <laughs> to go. <laughs> I still can't even deal. What were you at? Was that the biocuticals? No, it was um, ACNEM. So it's the uh, one with all where all the integrative doctors go and gather and um, naturopaths and stuff and nutritionists and dietitians go as well. But it's very much dominated by integrative doctors, which is nice. So I was like, well, if I have an anxiety attack from getting lost, at least someone here will know what to do. <laughs> and what was your biggest takeaway from that? Um, to be honest, it's funny. I go to all of these conventions and seminars and symposiums and it really comes back. Very, I mean, the research is very interesting and they do talk about a lot of um, stuff that's more complex in a lot of ways, but it comes back to the basics of like reduce inflammation, regulate blood sugar, um, get people to eat real food, try and individualize and, you know, treat the root cause and address the gut. Like it's all just comes back to what we do day in and day out in clinic. Um, but it just happens to be backed up by more and more research as time goes on and on and on. Um, but it's, yeah, it's kind of like, I'm like, mm, should I keep paying lots of money to go to these <laughs> things? When I come away and I'm like, okay, cool. So just keep doing what I'm doing. But it's a really good opportunity to network and, um, and also to be reassured that you are doing the right thing and to, um, yeah, understand what research is emerging. Because to be honest, like, I mean, every now and again, I'll jump back into the research, but most of my time is spent treating people these days, like, and doing some further education in more of a practical sense. But I don't anymore spend hours and hours looking at research just because it's not what is going to get the people results, <laughs> like mm. actually doing the practical stuff with them and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so good, but same, same takeaways as usual. Same girl, different eyebrows. Yeah. I've never heard that before. <laughs> I love eyebrows. <laughs> 
there's a there's a friend of my um, my husband's who like oh, I hope he doesn't listen to this anyway he like loves eyebrows he's like obsessed with eyebrows and like that's so funny and I feel really self conscious whenever like I've met him because like, I'm like oh my eyebrows okay today because I like you have my, a brow finish my eye yeah like my eyebrows grow real fast and I'm one what of do you mean people. oh they grow fast yeah you said they go fast what do you mean your eyebrows grow fast <laughs> <laughs> I got a very funny visual like your eyebrows like these little caterpillars across your face. <laughs> no, they grow real fast and like I'm one of those people that's like, oh, I'll just wait and like go to the beautician and get them to like wax them, but I leave it way too long and like next minute I've got like so many eyebrow hairs in like not necessarily like a monobrow, but just in like the other place where the eyebrows are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're gonna get into some questions. Here we are, here we are. Sorry, everybody. Oh, okay. Well, we are going to get into some questions. So today we are talking about, well, we took a bunch of questions from you guys and we've broken them down into um, a few areas. So we're going to break them down into questions that were related to hormones, some questions that were related to thyroid health and ones that were related to gut health. And then there was one that just wasn't really related to anything. But if we get to it, we will definitely answer it. If not, then we will answer it next time. So the first area we're going to start in is hormones. So the first question was basically just someone writing in and asking for tips for perimenopause and night sweats, which, Kate, I'll get your tips in a second. But what I thought would be important to do was to talk a little a little bit about what's happening in perimenopause. And basically the way I like to explain it to people are that your ovaries are starting to slowly shut up shop and retire basically. But think of your ovaries during this time as like the type A workaholic that relaxes for a bit and then all of a sudden they're opening up a new business, moving house and adopting <laughs> 10 cats. So they're kind of like out of action and they're not and not producing much estrogen and then all of a sudden they're back in they're back on and you know then they go to yoga and realize they don't need to do that and relax again and then the cycle continues so <laughs> it's kind of like a roller coaster and that's how a lot of perimenopausal women feel fun fact i actually went through menopause when i was like 18 when I had HA, like I had no hormones and me and my mum were getting like night sweats and hot flushes at the same time. I laugh. It's not funny, but it was funny. Um, anyway, so what's important about what I just mentioned with the estrogen roller coaster is that, you know, you will be highly symptomatic and um, often your, your symptoms will be worse if your adrenal function isn't optimal. Because what happens is the adrenals generally pick up the slack of the ovaries in, in terms of like stimulating sex hormone production. And if you are underslept, undernourished, stressed out, which is, you know, so many of us, then it makes that job a lot harder. So um, I guess that brings us to, well, what should we do about it? So Kate, do you want to start with... Um, a suggestion in relation to what people should do if they are going per through perimenopause and perhaps are getting um, symptoms like night sweats. Yeah, and I think that was a, a very interesting analogy. <laughs> <laughs> a good one, interesting. Thank you. <laughs> and what you said about you going through menopause when you had HA, um, or HA, I get in trouble for saying H, I shouldn't say H, HA. Um, 
I actually have a lot of women in my course and clients with hypothalamic amenorrhea who struggle with the night sweats because it is kind of similar to that perimenopause, menopause, because your hormones are flatlining, your, your estrogen is so low and often your cortisol is quite high, which contributes, like both of those can contribute to night sweats. Um, and I see that even with, with clients whose estrogen might be normal, but they're really stressed out. Um, and though that elevated cortisol, which can contribute to sort of, sort of blood sugar swings throughout the night, can cause um, night sweats as well. So as, you, as your cortisol goes up kind of in the middle of the night, your blood sugar can drop and all kinds of crazy stuff, night sweats. Um, but in terms of what to do, biggest thing to focus on, and Nat, you alluded to it, with perimenopause and menopause, biggest thing you need to focus on is stress management because your adrenals are taking over. And what you want to do is nourish that production of sex hormones, of estrogen, progesterone, testosterone from your adrenal glands and minimize the output of your stress hormones, so cortisol, um, adrenaline, noradrenaline, because that cortisol, those stress hormones are going to be made at the expense of your sex hormones. So the more stress management techniques you can introduce in your life, the better that balance is going to be and the more production of sex hormones you're going to um, maximize. So incorporating things like meditation daily. I really love the One Giant Mind app. Um, I really love Legs Up the Wall Pose. So it's a uh, Viparita Karani, is it? Getting a bit oh, no, fancy. I, I, I just call it legs up the wall pose. It's my favorite. I love it. You're a yoga instructor. How do you not know that? <laughs> <laughs> I choose not to butcher the Sanskrit names. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't butcher it. I said it exactly how it is. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. No. Anyway, just get your legs up the wall at night. So bottom <laughs> against the wall, legs up go the to, wall. Go to sleep with your, with your feet down. Just... <laughs> Well, yeah, stay there for like five to ten minutes. Your feet will kind of go a bit numb, but hang out there and just <laughs> breathe, read a book, try not to play on your phone because that's kind of stressful. Um, in the morning, if you can practice some deep belly breathing or throughout the day, if you feel yourself getting stressed throughout the day, um, practice that deep belly breathing. So placing your hands on your belly as you inhale, you feel your belly rise. As you exhale, you feel your belly fall. So big focus on stress management. I know that sounds like people are like, oh, I want a pill. <laughs> but really, it is number one. Um, if you want a pill, or I was just about to say that, yeah. <laughs> there are a few things. Um, so, one thing that I have um, really loved introducing into people's diets and my own diet as well to help balance estrogens and help with detoxification is broccoli sprout powder. So it's a really good source of sulforaphane and diendolmethane, which is really wonderful for um, supporting that detoxification and uh, managing estrogen balance and estrogen dominance. Very easy to incorporate in your life. You can chuck it into a smoothie. Um, that's probably the easiest way to do it. You could just scull it down with a bit of water. Do you use broccoli sprouts? Yeah, I do. I use um, that or in some people I will actually use DIM, like the supplement yeah, yeah. DIM. Um, and sometimes calcium deglucrate as well, which is working a little bit differently. It's, it's kind of binding up. Um, well, it's, it's helping clear estrogen as well. That's the easiest way. I was going to go into the science, but it really isn't relevant. Just it helps bind up estrogen as well. So DIM's more working on um, phase uh, one detoxification and sorry, phase two detoxification and um, calcium deglucrate is more like, Actually, what happens is in your gut, if 
um, estrogen is unconjugated as in something called beta-glucuronidase breaks that bond, then the estrogen recirculates and calcium D-glucurate stops that from happening. So it helps your estrogen still continue to move out of your body. Um, So you kind of, if you use both then you're supporting, um, you know, estrogen detox in two ways, but honestly, broccoli sprouts are awesome. And I definitely have recommended those at some stages as well. It really just depends um, on the client as to, to what I do and what else I'm trying to give them because sometimes it's um, easier. I've got a few supplements that might have a couple of things in one and it might contain broccoli sprouts and therefore I don't give them dim. But yeah, you didn't. Mm. that was like such a long <laughs> explanation. Okay. Yes, um, yes, I do. If there's, if there's anyone who loves all the nerd talk and the science around it, I really encourage you to look up Dr. Rhonda Patrick. She's incredible and really up to date with the research around broccoli sprout powder, um, Brussels sprout powder, sulforaphanes and all of this. Very, very nerdy, but awesome. So Dr. Love, that's a really good recommendation. And also I love Brussels sprouts and I got so excited because I saw them in season the other day. I can't wait to eat them. You're a weirdo. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, a few other tips, um, essential oils, clary sage, essential oil is really good at balancing estrogens. Um, clary calm, the blend of essential oils, the women's monthly blend can be great for this period of life, the perimenopause. Um, postmenopause, I'd be looking more at a blend called Whisper, which is a combination of oils that are supportive of hormones as well. Um, I'd also look at some oils that are going to support stress management. So frankincense, lavender, aromatouch, bergamot. Um, if you get those hot flushes, peppermint on the tips of your ears can be wonderful for cooling you down in that mm. moment. I love that. That would be my big tips there. I like it. I'm going to add a couple. Um, so in terms of supplements, totally on board with everything you said there. The other things that I often use would be um, magnesium and activated B, zinc and vitamin C. They're really kind of uh, nutrients that are going to support multiple areas of that whole situation. And I find it re- works really well. Um, you can also use um, taurine or GABA. Um, but So taurine works with magnesium basically to help to produce GABA, which is like your calm, relax hormone that sometimes can be compromised as your progesterone levels fall during this time. Um, there's mixed science on whether on the effectiveness of GABA in supplement form. Personally, I find it works great for some and doesn't do anything for other people. So it's just a matter of trying it and seeing how you go. But I'd start with the other things that Kate mentioned and also the magnesium Bs, vitamin C, zinc first before I went down the taurine GABA route because you may find that the others are enough. And then um, in terms of addressing the actual end result or symptoms of hot flushes, um, on top of what Kate said I'd, and on top of the other supplements I just mentioned, other things that can help are um, ashwagandha or withania, black cohosh, uh, cohosh sage and maritime pine bark. But I would um, probably speak to a practitioner to get the right balance of all of those for you because there can be some contraindications with medications or other types of things that are going on in your body but just be aware that those are some kind of options for you so hopefully that gives you plenty of ideas to run with the next question was um 
ideas for eating more organ meats in pregnancy and can I eat pate? And can I just say, does everyone remember that line from Shrek where donkey's like, everybody love pate? No. Oh, I love donkey so much. (laughs) Anyway, I'm really like showing my personality on this podcast today. Anyway. We love your personality. Everyone can go and watch Shrek and, or just Google, just YouTube it. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes. Everybody love pate. Anyway, Kate, can, how do we eat more organ meats and can we eat pate in pregnancy? And maybe if we can, how often can we eat it? Mm. So I'm not sure if, well, I'm sure you probably would remember, maybe oh, it was a couple of years ago now, there was uh, more than a couple of years ago, maybe four years ago, there was a big drama of babies are going to die if they eat liver or if mum eats liver um, because, you know, the news likes to dramatise things. Um, And the reason why they were saying that was because people were promoting um, a formula made from liver um, and they were concerned about the vitamin A levels in them, which on one hand is a legitimate concern because it can be toxic, but on the other hand, we kind of need it. So backtracking. So what is... So organ meats, backtrack, backtrack. I like to waffle a bit, sorry. Um, right, you're in the right place. We're good friends. <laughs> okay, so organ meats. Um, yes, you can eat them during pregnancy. And my favourite organ meat would be liver. I mean, obviously there's other organ meats like brain, heart, kidneys, thymus. Am I forgetting? There's others. There's others that you can eat. Um, pretty much anything. Um, but liver is the big one that I often recommend and it's kind of my favourite superfood of all foods. And I often say to people, they say, do I need to take a multivitamin every day? And I will say, if you're eating liver regularly, then no. <laughs> but if you're not, then yes, because it is such a nutrient-dense food that we often forget about and don't add into our diet. So just 50 grams of liver, which is about half your palm size, will give you 50% of all of your vitamin and mineral requirements for the day. So your RDIs, so the minimums that you need. Just 50 grams, like half your hand. That's teeny tiny. And I'm pretty sure there's like a video out there of you somewhere doing a liver shot or something. I feel like I saw that. Is that Can't say. Can't say. (laughs) (laughs) Can't can't, can't confirm salts. We're going to find it, everybody, and you guys are going to go watch it. Yeah, it was liver and raspberries. Liver, yes. that was mm-hmm. liver shot. I, it was, yeah, I, I felt amazing after it, but um, uh, it was quite metallic. <laughs> Delicious. Really because, selling it to us. Well, it's obviously, it's really, really high in iron. And that's another thing with pregnancy. Because your blood volume's increasing so much, your iron will tend to be quite depleted. And it's really very important for healthy birth outcomes for mum and bub to have adequate iron levels because it can be quite detrimental for both if you have iron deficiency going into labour because obviously during the labour you're going to lose a lot of blood. Um, So always do check your iron levels. Um, And I find that during pregnancy supplementation is a bit meh. It doesn't really increase your levels of iron that well and can often lead to the side effects of like nausea and constipation. There are obviously some fabulous iron supplements, but a lot of them, I don't find them to be effective in bumping up those iron levels to where they need to be. Um, so can we eat liver in pregnancy and should we? Yes, 
we can and we should, but we need to be aware of those vitamin A levels. So vitamin A is that fat-soluble vitamin, okay? So we get vitamin A from liver. We get it in some dairy, some oily fish, egg yolks, fish liver oils. It's not in your orange vegetables. In your orange vegetables are carotenoids, which can be converted to vitamin A, but the rate at which they're converted is about 20 to 50%, depending on the individual's vitamin A status. Okay. Yeah. Interesting on that is like, so I previously did a lot of analyzing of people's um, genes and there were so many people with compromised, um, uh, like SNPs basically, like compromised conversion from beta carotene to vitamin A or to retinol. And yeah, I definitely conquer. Mm. Um, and, and while so too much vitamin A can be toxic, okay, it can be really detrimental. So we've got to be mindful of not having too much. But we also need to remember that we need vitamin A. And so I've got a little list of a few things that we need vitamin A for. So it's important for normal development and differentiation of tissues, kind of important for babies. It has an important role in reproduction, embryonic development and growth. It's essential for the manufacture of rhodopsin in the retina. So important for eyes and vision. It's important for healthy thyroid function, brain development, bone development, immune function. It's an antioxidant and it's important for detoxification as well. Right. So right. It's kind of important. All right. A little bit. <laughs> so how much do we have? A small amount often is fine okay so i have a post and i'm going to link to it as well um because we don't want to have too much but the research around vitamin a toxicity is more on really really excessive amounts or people eating polar bear liver um, but i don't think any of us are going to eat polar bear liver how would you even get that Sorry. i don't know it's i don't know relevant. just thinking i don't know <laughs> <laughs> Um, so if you're having a small amount of chicken liver pate every couple of days, I think that would be totally fine. So if you had like a, a piece of really high quality toast, gluten-free toast with some pate on it, that would be fabulous. But you need to make it fresh, really, really fresh. Um, so if you're making your own pate, I wouldn't recommend buying store-bought pate because that's a listeria risk during pregnancy. Um, but make your own fresh pate from organic livers, spread it out into small containers, like a daily dose container. So just like one to two serves in a little container and freeze the rest and only pull out what you need to use in a day. So you're eating it super fresh for that day. I love it. Good advice. Mm. Well, I don't really feel like I need to add anything to that. So let's move on to the next question, which was just around healing um, HA and exercise. Go. Do you, what do you recommend? Um, I only really wanted to, I could talk about this for ages, so I just want to quickly touch on this because I have started to talk about my exercise more on my social media. I have had a few women who are still in the healing process of hypothalamic amenorrhea and saying, awesome, can I do this while I'm healing? Um, my answer is no, <laughs> sorry. Um, so I have started incorporating more high intensity interval training, um, because I have regular cycles now. So this, so what are we now? 2019, I started my healing process in 2013 and had regular cycles. Well, I conceived Olivia 2014. 
Um, so it's taken quite a long time between then and now to start reintroducing high intensity interval training again. And, I, and I've only done so once my cycles have been regular so I can track them. So what I would say to those of you wondering if slash when you can introduce more intense exercise, once you have your period back, once it's consistent, once you're ovulating as well, and you can track it so you can know, okay, my cycles are 30 days long. I usually ovulate on this time. I usually bleed for this many days and this is what it looks like. So when you start to introduce more intense exercise, you can actually use that as a bit of a, a monthly report card as Lara Bryden calls it. So you can look back and go, okay, maybe I pushed things a little bit too hard this month because it's caused my cycles to go a bit longer or this didn't affect my cycles. So awesome. I'll keep this level of exercise for a few months, see how I go and then increase and again, reassess. Does mm. that make sense? It does. Yeah. And you know, I was the same, like when I was healing from HA, I just did everything gradually. I think like it's important to like, once you get to a stage where you, you know, have got your period back, for example, like say you've like, this happens to a lot of my clients. So we're working and working at getting their period back. We finally get their period back. And the first question is, okay, so can I start increasing my exercise? And I totally get it because I was exactly the same. Um, but the trick to it is like slow and steady wins the race um, yeah. because your body is so hypersensitive to, you know, stress and exercise is a stress. And so the, the way that you get back to your, you know, routine of exercise, like particularly if high intensity exercise is what you love to do, you can get that back there, but you can't go from, okay, I got my period once to sweet. I'm going to go and roll enroll in F45 or <laughs> go to CrossFit or, you know, go and go to the gym four days a week and do high intensity exercise. Like start with like, like I would not start with like high, mm. like, like interval training. I would start with maybe lifting some, if you're assuming you're already walking and doing yoga and like generally moving your body, I would start with lifting some weights. Yeah. Maybe like once or twice a week and then see how it goes. And then if that was all good, as Kate said, then, you know, see where to go from there, but just try not to, you know, I don't like, I guess I'm just going to say like, try not to ruin all your hard work by, you know, going too hard too soon because it's, you know, it takes so much of our energy and our effort and our dedication and our resilience to get our period back, which, you know, for anyone listening who has gone through that journey, you know what I'm talking about. Other people might be like, what? Like you're crazy, but it mm -hmm. really takes, you know, a lot of emotional energy and, and consistency and persistence to get it back. And you just, once you're there, you don't want to take steps backwards. Like if you just uh, have a little bit, a little bit more patience, which I get is hard, but if you just do that, you'll be in a much better place and you will be able to get back to where you want to get to faster. Yeah. I mean, six years, six years I've waited. Yeah. What did I wait? Well, I waited a really long time, but I honestly, I did all of the wrong things along the way actually. Um, and did exactly what I'm telling you not to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> admittedly, but it meant that, you know, I kept going back and forth, back and forth and ended up with, you know, way more adrenal thyroid sex hormone imbalance issues than I needed to, if I had just done what I'm telling, what we're telling you guys to do now. So learn through my mistakes. <laughs> Yes, that's all I can say. <laughs> um, okay. Should we jump into thyroid? Yes, we should. 
All right. Yeah. So the first question in relation to our thyroid for you, my dear what can you do if your doctor refuses to test your thyroid properly? Uh, find a new one is option <laughs> one. <laughs> and I mean that like you can, but just know that, um, in Australia at the moment, there's, um, basically a big crackdown and everything on doctors and, you know, ordering less than like what's seen as unnecessary tests, which in terms of thyroid, anything besides a TSH is unnecessary as a first line test. So just know that that is why they're refusing you. Um, and because they can get flagged if they are seen to be ordering unnecessary tests. So, you know, there are doctors out there that are willing to do it. Um, but just know that the reason that they're not is because they are, well, either they believe that all you need to measure is TSH or they're worried about getting kind of, you know, flagged, which is stupid. But anyway, that's just what we're dealing with. So, you know, I would say try a couple of doctors. Um, I also, to be honest, um, tell people to say that, like express that they really want all of it tested and, um, you know, say that they've been out of whack in the past and you want to see where they're at now. Um, there, there are kind of other ways you can help to get yourself tested. If that still doesn't work, you can do it privately. Um, so you can either, I mean, there's a few ways. So through a naturopath or nutritionist, you can get them done. So I can order, you know, tests for clients in Australia and New Zealand privately in terms of, you know, a full thyroid panel in terms of TSH, free T4, free T3 and antibodies. You can, there are also a few places online that do direct-to-consumer blood testing, but obviously you can order them there, but you really need to know how to interpret them, which you know is, is going to be where you want to see a practitioner. So the services that you can use to just order your own are ice cream. Um, that they are in Australia. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure they are now in New Zealand or they may still be just rolling out there. Um, and then iMedical in Australia as well. But as I said, like, you're going to need help interpreting them as well. And just to note, when you do go and get your thyroid tested, make sure that you do it fasting first thing in the morning between about 7 and 9 a.m. Um, and make sure you don't take um, any thyroid medication before your test. So to, if you're on thyroid medication, take it to the lab with you, have your thyroid tested, then take it. Um, and try. I just tell people try and generally avoid supplements about 24 hours before the test just to um, have, you know, nothing lingering, um, in there as well. So there are a few tips, but yeah, you can do it. It just is a little bit more difficult. Yes. You have to pay out a packet, a packet out of pocket, but it's mm -hmm. worth it in my opinion. Totally. So that's my answer to that one. I can care. <laughs> All right. Second question. Do thyroid issues impact pregnancy or fertility? Yes and yes. Um, so a few ways. So first of all, the presence of antibodies or a TSH above, above about 2.2 to 2.5 doubles the um, chance of, or doubles the risk of having a miscarriage. Um, the second way it is. So, and what happens is the presence of antibodies doubles it and then the, like a TSH elevated um, doubles it again. So... Right. Yeah, I don't say that to scare people, though I completely recognise that it does. Um, and it's not to say that every single person that has... I mean, I have so many patients that, 
um, you know, have the presence of antibodies and still have had successful pregnancies. It's just important to be aware that there is an increased risk. And if there is, you want to know about it because there are things that you can do to try and help um, mitigate that as well. So um, it's, it's just knowledge is power um, and try not to let it scare you. Try to just let it inform you. Now, the second um, thing to point out is that not enough thyroid hormone affects the body's ability to produce enough progesterone, which is needed to ovulate and therefore fall pregnant. And there's also, um, if you have an underactive thyroid, it can elevate prolactin, which suppresses ovulation, which you also need if you want to make a baby. And then the final kind of relationship that I'd point out is that there is a very strong relationship between the adrenals and thyroid. So if you are under a lot of stress, your body's not going to want to reproduce. So in that way, it can also impact it. So lots of different ways um, that thyroid issues can absolutely impact pregnancy or fertility and I encourage every single person that wants to um, conceive to make sure they undergo you know, proper thyroid mm. testing at least six months before they try and conceive because you also really want to check your iodine levels because we want them at a minimum of 150 before you fall pregnant because they're a lot harder to get up quickly during pregnancy than they are um, you know, if you're going, you're better off optimizing them before you get into that, into that stage, because a lot of that really key big development happens early on in pregnancy and they need, I, you need iodine for that and your baby needs iodine for that. And it's just really important to get that checked off. So yes, big relationship there. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, as you said, Nat, getting tested before. And then I would only add, if you do have an established thyroid condition, really make sure you're getting uh, your thyroids tested every six weeks during pregnancy as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I also encourage people, if they have thyroid issues, like existing thyroid issues to, and they're trying to conceive to uh, monitor their basal body temperature. Um, and Kate, you have a fantastic article on this on your website as well about monitoring um, your basal body temp and just being able to predict earlier when you do fall pregnant um, compared to a pregnancy test can be really helpful. And as soon as you recognize you are pregnant, if you've got existing thyroid issues, I encourage people to go and get their thyroid tested just to see um, you know, where your TSH is at and whether medication um, needs to be added in or adjusted um, for the safety of um, your baby and you throughout pregnancy. So yeah, um, if you just Google the holistic nutritionist basal body temperature tracking, your article, will, like Kate's article will come up. So just do that. Awesome. Yeah. Question three, what foods need to be eliminated? Eliminate. <laughs> eliminated in Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Okay, so, well, you should just do my 12-week thyroid rescue program. <laughs> Shameless plug. It's actually launching again in June, but anyway, um, I'm just kidding, but not really because you should do it and it's awesome. Um, but, uh, yeah, an elimination reintroduction diet is often the way I go because I find it is really, really helpful. So, um, the foods that I most often encourage people to eliminate would be um, gluten for sure, dairy, soy, legumes, grains, sugar, alcohol, coffee, 
um, eggs, nightshades, nuts and seeds. Now, none of that is forever. I know it sounds like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to eat? Um, uh. Relax, everybody. There's so many delicious recipes and foods you can eat. And to be honest, like everyone's degree at which they need to get rid of all of those things is going to vary. I encourage people to do it because it helps set a baseline. But I would say the main things that people with Hashimoto's need to or would benefit from staying off, you know, more, you know, medium to long term would be gluten, dairy, um, and sugar would be the big ones. Like you can get away with some of the other ones most often here and there, but those would be the big ones. However, it is still really beneficial to do an elimination reintroduction type protocol to really bring down inflammation in your body to hit reset to allow your immune system to calm down a little bit if you've developed any food intolerances because there is often food intolerances associated with um, thyroid issues or Hashimoto's or autoimmune conditions um, because there's often the presence of leaky gut if so if we can settle all of that down allow for some healing then you can often reintroduce a lot of these foods and find out which, if any, actually affect you and how you're feeling um, on an individual basis, which is exactly what we do in the Thyroid Rescue Program. So we take everyone through that whole process and don't leave you with um, no idea of what to eat. There is a whole you know, meal plan, shopping list, recipes for the whole 12 weeks. But that's what I would recommend. I mean, if you're like, I don't want to do your program, I just want to start right now doing something, then if you haven't already, eliminate gluten, dairy and um and sugar as a start and industrial seed oils but i feel like no one should ever eat those anyway unless you know except for the some exposure that we get at restaurants and stuff which is just life but you know definitely don't have vegetable oil in your cupboard or anything like that unless it's in your garage cupboard for like lubing stuff <laughs> but not not lubing for romantic <laughs> don't do that <laughs> Lube is such a funny word. <laughs> I mean, lubing doors lube. and hinges. I not... never think of lube as anything other than lubing for sexual purposes. When you just said that, I was like, oh, does she have sex in the garage? <laughs> I do not, and nor do I use canola oil for lube. There <laughs> 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 be all kinds of wrong. I've used coconut oil. Have you? Yeah. I feel like oh. that works well. Yeah. Just, just keep some in the bedroom. Works for massage. Anyway, this is getting into a whole nother podcast. <laughs> This was not what we're supposed to talk about. Anyway, yeah, coconut oil for, you know, lube as, coconut oil as lube does work well if anyone wanted that tip. So enjoy. <laughs> uh, next question. <laughs> oh, we're actually moving on to gut, gut health now. Do you want to ask the first question and then I can? Um... Sure. And I think the, the first two might kind of tie in to each other. Oh, okay. All right. Cool. But, yep. but, but I will ask the first question. All right. I had, not me personally, but, um, the person who wrote in, I had a stool test done, but nothing came back and I still have heaps of gut symptoms. Any ideas? Yes. So I say this a lot. So um, there are usually two, th- most commonly two things are going on. One is that the test you did wasn't right. So there's a lot of different types of gut testing out there and it's an ever evolving field. And even I have recently changed the type of test that I recommend or testing you have to recognize all testing has its limitations and all gut testing out there has its benefits and has its drawbacks there's very few that like do absolutely everything 
Um, my preference um, as of now, as of today's recording, um, mm -hmm. is using um, DNA-based um, stool testing with PCR testing. So that's not going to mean much to you guys. But my encouragement would be make sure that you're speaking to someone who knows what they're doing in relation to doing stool testing and gut testing. So also recognize that doing a stool test is assessing your large intestine. It's not looking at your small intestine for anything that's in there. So that's where the second thing can come up. So if you've done, say, for example, you've done the best DNA PCR combination stool test that's out there and nothing came back as imbalanced, nothing came back as a parasite or yeast or fungal overgrowth, everything was, you know, sweet as, then um, the next thing that I often see is that the issue actually isn't in your large intestine, the issue is in your small intestine um, in relation to SIBO, so small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is a... Um, the, the way you actually get tested for that, which is actually the, the second question. So I'm just kind of answering two in one here, but, um, the second, uh, the way you get tested for SIBO is through a breath test. So, um, it is not through a stool test. It will not show up in a stool test. The only way you can know it's there is through a breath test. It's a pain in the butt to do, but, um, it does work well and it can diagnose whether, diagnose whether there is SIBO there. Um, Kate, what was the second part to that SIBO question? Because I feel like there was more. So it was, I keep hearing people talk about SIBO and I feel like I have all the symptoms, but I am not sure how to get tested or what to do about it. Okay. Yeah. So getting tested. So, um, the doctor won't test you for it, but you can, um, order it through a practitioner that does gut testing. So, um, it's called a SIBO breath test basically. So you, you, that's easy to do. I'm not sure if SIBO... So the test that I use is, SIBO, is from SIBOtest.com. I'm not sure if they do direct-to-consumer stuff, but even if they did, you'd want to speak to a practitioner about interpreting the results and also giving you a treatment protocol. So um, in terms of treatment, I use a combination of dietary modification. So often I use either it's called a SIBO diet or I'll use a low FODMAP diet just depending on the person um, in conjunction with antimicrobials depending on the person depending on which type of bacteria is overgrown. So there's methane dominant species and there's hydrogen dominant species. Methane dominant tend to, you tend to present more as constipation, hydrogen you tend to present more as diarrhea, but that is not always true. It's just common. Um, and then there can also be uh, CFO, which is a small intestinal fungal overgrowth, which you can't test for, but we would know based on process of elimination. So that's something, again, you're going to have to talk to a practitioner about because they need to be skilled in, you know, interpreting your symptoms, eliminating, um, you know, other possibilities through testing like the breath testing or the stool testing and just taking a really good case history. Um, and then similar um, treatment is different antimicrobials. Um, but again, I'm not going to name all of them because it really is a little bit different for everyone. And, um, it's important that you get kind of individualized treatment for that. Um, yeah, that's my answer for that one. Yeah, good answer. Um, with the, I think you touched on the stool test. I often get um, clients saying that they did a stool test and when I, I want to say probe, but that's <laughs> You're on a, roll probed today, a little bit deeper. Well, that's, yeah, it's too early for that. <laughs> anyway, when I dig a little bit, now I just have very bad <laughs> in my head. 
That's right. I go to the garage and collect when your I thoughts. Ask, when I ask further questions, <laughs> um, I discover that they have only had their stool test done at the doctor. And the doctors often only do a certain amount of tests. They don't do a comprehensive, what we call a comprehensive stool analysis. So um, it's kind of a, it can be a bit of a nothing. So even though the comprehensive stool analysis plus parasitology times three, so you don't miss things, can be a little bit expensive, it's definitely worth it So to avoid kind of going around and around in circles. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, I, um, yeah I often tell people, I, I like agree and then, but then slightly slightly disagree <laughs> like i i tell people go i mean the doctor so the doctor uses if you ask for pcr uh multiplex pc uh, multiplex with pcr testing through the doctor sometimes things pop up there so it's worth doing but as kate said it's not worth basing everything off so it is better to get more thorough testing um if you're doing just to, to um make sure no one's confused if you're doing a dna based test um, then you don't need to do a three-day sample but if you're doing one that is not based on dna based testing if it is a technique called Malditoff or a different technique then you do need to do a three-day test so as you can hear it is a little bit confusing which is why it's a really good idea to actually um, speak with someone because there is plenty of direct-to-consumer gut tests out there but if you don't know what you're trying to find or what you're purchasing or how to interpret it, it can be a big fat waste of money. So make sure you speak to someone um, before you invest in that. Yeah. yeah. Lots of poop. Lots of poop. poop. Um, so there's a question, thoughts on low FODMAP diet if people have irritable bowel syndrome? Yeah, so I do use the low FODMAP diet in IBS as a temporary measure to reduce their symptoms but for me, it's just a Band-Aid and I want to know why do you have IBS and why can't you tolerate FODMAP? So usually it's SIBO. Um, sometimes it's um, a parasite. Sometimes it is Candida. Um, so I would put you on a low FODMAP diet, try and find the cause and treat the cause and then reintroduce FODMAPs because FODMAPs are food for your beneficial bacteria um, and we should be able to tolerate them in, at least in moderate amounts and they are beneficial obviously they're not beneficial if you're feeling like absolute crap no pun intended <laughs> from them. but we need to know why because we want to eventually be able to have the broadest diet possible with the least amount of symptoms so yes kate do you use the low fodmap diet or recommend it or have any differing thoughts to that no, I do. I, I agree with you, but I, I think it's um, it can be a really healing tool. Um, for I also really love, and I think it's worth a mention, the low FODMAP app from Monash University. So it can be a little bit confusing when you start a low FODMAP diet in terms of where to look and finding all different information on the interwebs. Um, obviously work with a practitioner, but I really love the low FODMAP app by Monash University because they are up to date with the latest research and they kind of use a bit of a traffic light system with, with their recommendations. So, you know, green means go, red means stop, orange <laughs> means proceed with caution. Um, <laughs> Thanks for that, you that explanation of the traffic light system. Yeah, fantastic. It gives you, it gives you um, exact uh, quantities as well. So, for example, you might tolerate 
a quarter cup of sweet potato, but half a cup might be too much. You get into the red zone then. So really handy app to use. Awesome. Yeah, I have it on my phone as well, actually. Not because mm. I have an issue with FODMAPs, but because I get questions all the time. And um, I'm not actually a running encyclopedia of FODMAP foods. I know the most common ones, but sometimes people ask me a question. And I'm like, mm, I don't remember if that is orange or red. Anyway, no one needed to know that. All these conversations usually happen in my head. It's my husband's been away for two weeks. I've had no one to bond with. So, I just, uh, so we're getting it. <laughs> yeah. So everybody. He'll be back soon. So it's all right. Oh um, now I feel we can probably answer the next one kind of okay. quickly. All right. What is it? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So we got a question on our thoughts on the use of microwaves to heat our food. I know hot food is better to eat. How do you heat your leftovers? Yeah, how do you heat? Okay, so, Kate, we may or may not differ on this. We haven't actually discussed it before. So, <laughs> I mean, I, like, I find this an interesting question and I think that there, my approach to it is quite non, not very exciting. So, I think that in terms of the concerns around it, there's two main concerns that come up. Um, and one is that you're at risk of ca um, for cancer or increased risk of cancer when you're exposed to these microwaves uh, or radiate like the radiation from microwaves. But when you actually look into the research on this, it actually seems that it's not quite as cut and dry as a lot of us think. And most evidence seems to suggest that the risk is increased if you're actually exposed to the waves, which if the microwave, microwave is built according to standards, that shouldn't happen um, unless you're standing super close to it. So I'd say um, if or when you heat the food, maybe don't stand right in front of it. I know it makes you feel like your food will be done faster because you're watching it, but I've tested that theory and can confirm that that is incorrect. So just step away from your microwave when you're using it to avoid that concern. The second thing that's often a concern is that it destroys the proteins and nutrients in your food. Now, I think that the language around this is kind of misleading because, yes, it does change the structure of the proteins to an extent. It basically denatures them, which is when the protein unfolds. Um, anyway, like we won't go into the science of that for now, mm -hmm. but this happens in all types of heating. Plus, your body also does it itself um, using stomach acid. So in terms of, so that's kind of the protein thing. So no, um, it doesn't. Um, in t well, it does, but it's not a concern. The second part is in, the, in terms of the nutrients. And again, the science is mixed. So that means in some cases, microwaving food decreases the vitamin or mineral content. In others, it increases it compared to other um, heating methods. And um, actually water-soluble vitamins like B vitamins and vitamin C are lost more when boiled compared to microwave because they are water soluble, soluble and they leach into your water. And unless you're sipping on your saucepan water, you probably aren't getting as many nutrients. Not to say that you can't ever boil anything. I'm just putting into context everything, putting everything into context. So in saying all of that, I feel like, you know, there's is still probably a lot we don't know. And when possible, and if you've got the time, I do think heating your food in an oven or on a stovetop is a more um, natural option, I suppose. But I also don't think people should be fearful of ever using the microwave, um, you know, if it's the difference between eating a nutrient-dense meal that you've cooked yourself and a reheating versus going and buying takeaway 
from down the street. Those are my thoughts, Kate, but I, um, I'd I love to hear yours, even if they differ. And also, can you touch on maybe, um, you know, what we should avoid heating our food in if we are going to heat it? Well, that was more extensive than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can answer this quickly. No, we can't. <laughs> um, my thoughts. I, I'm of the opinion that we don't know enough about what it could potentially do. So I do minimise my use of microwaves. I don't own a microwave. Um, you know, I think it also takes up too much space as well and they're kind of ugly (laughs) from an aesthetic point of view um we also if so if you are using a microwave or any heating really um mostly the microwave because you're probably not going to put this in the oven (laughs) i hope you're not going to put plastic in the oven um (laughs) don't heat your food in plastic um ideally you shouldn't be storing hot or fatty foods in plastic either um dry cold foods are okay but really minimizing that use of plastic in the house um, but definitely not heating in plastic. Use glass or ceramic and probably not like stainless steel in there because I think that kind of explodes things. I haven't used a microwave for a long time. I'm really um, retarded when it comes to things like you can and can't put in electronic devices like <laughs> or ovens and stuff. Like I'm so bad. Like, I mean, I'll, I'm fine to use like baking paper because I'm like, well, it says baking, so surely it's fine. But then all the other papers, I'm like, is this going to explode or create a fire? And my husband's a firefighter, so I'm like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Oh, well, <laughs> just give it some extra work. It could explode, but that's okay. I'm safe. Um, so I think, I, you know, I, I do get a bit of FOMO when I see all these recipes for mug cakes, which are like, cook it for one minute in yeah. the microwave. I'm like, but how do you do it without a microwave? I want the mug cake. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, oh, oh, my God. I was, gonna be, I was about to say the dumbest thing I've said all day. I, I was about to say maybe there's an oven cake. <laughs> it's every cake. You should, you should not have repeated that. You should have kept that one to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> definitely oh somehow extract that <laughs> you should edit that out um so how do i heat my leftovers on the stove in a pot yeah same. or I eat them cold i'm really yeah, not same. yeah when i'm lazy i'm just like oh whatever i'll have it cold um, actually i should i should uh, sorry she did say i know hot food is better to eat i should put some context around this the person who asked is going through the healing process of hypothalamic amenorrhea where i do uh, warming foods yeah warming foods yes. yes good point good point yeah well stovetop oven i often find like chucking stuff in the oven and then like going and doing something for like not forgetting about the food when cooking when cooking everybody except like you can like interval look in my opinion <laughs> So I'll go like have a shower and then come back to, and then it'll be heated because otherwise I just stand there. And I'm like, oh, why isn't it heated yet? After like one minute of the oven preheating with my food in there because I'm a little bit impatient. So just some tips: go and do something else, or go and listen to our podcast. Yeah, listen to our podcast while you're waiting for your food to heat up. <laughs> okay. Well, um, we've talked for quite a, a long time. time. So I feel like we should wrap it up. Is there anything you wanted to add before we close off, Kate? 
Um, if there is anyone in Queenstown, I am running a workshop there this Friday. I don't know if they're going to hear it before then, but this Friday night and Saturday morning, uh, my last holistic health workshops for a while. So if you live in Queenstown or around and would like to come to one of those, there's only eight spaces available at each workshop. So get in quick, shoot me a message. Um, and also if anyone's thinking about getting started with essential oils, there's 20% off most of the starter kits, but only for May. So you only have a few days left of that. Ooh, exciting. Okay, cool. Well, I will actually make sure this is uploaded so people hear that. <laughs> we we'll release um, it on the 1st of June. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no pressure. Um, right, I'm going to upload it, but it means I'm not going to edit out anything I've said because... I just got to be speedy. Um, okay, cool. And if you guys, as always, have questions, please keep writing them in because we love doing Q and A's. They're fun so much. Yeah, they are. Um, okay, cool. Well, Kate, have a lovely day, and I will speak to you soon. You too, Nat. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Holistic Nutritionist podcast. Remember, we love to make the show relevant to you. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss, just submit them to podcast at nataliekdouglas.com and we'll get them answered for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it with a friend. And if you're looking for more info about how we can accelerate your journey to optimal health, you can find me, Nat, over at nataliekdouglas.com and Kate at theholisticnutritionist.com. See you next time.